Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shoma Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. And today, we're excited to have Ethan Schechter on the show. Ethan is VP of Sales at Sneak and was the first sales hire at Sneak, as well as the previous CRO at Zero Turnarounds. In this episode, we're going to cover early stage go-to-market, how to scale and reinvent go-to-market as the company grows, detailed advice for early stage founders, and also how to scale yourself through various stages. So welcome to the show, Ethan. Thank you, Shomik. I'm very excited to be here. I did think we were going deep on WebAssembly today, so I'm going to have to uh, pivot, but I think I can handle it. I think we can talk sales. I think you can still do the WebAssembly yeah, component. I, but... I, I, I always harass you online, like, what is this WebAssembly thing about? I need to learn more. But uh, you let the sales guy on the pod, so let's go do this. So I want to start out with the early days, and I want to go back to Zero Turnaround, because you joined as a sales leader there, and help scale the company from, I believe, like not much revenue, even if it's close to zero to tens of millions of ARR. And you were kind of selling developer tools before they were, you know, so-called cool, right? Like before people knew about. So what was it like? Did budget exist for dev tools at the time? Like, was it a very top-down sale? How did that decision-making process work? Very interesting. I got through my network into a couple of meetings with some VCs who were funding Zero Turnaround. And I knew nothing about developer security or developer tooling. And I had been in kind of traditional, more like EMC-based infrastructure sales. You know, I said, well, these guys seem really smart and they must have done due diligence uh, to invest here. So, you know what? I, I feel like most of the work is done for me. So let me just dive right in. Little did you know, right? No. Yeah, no, and luckily they had. I mean, shout out to, I, I think, friends of both Start Venture Guides, uh, Ben Nine, Ben Holtzman, but they had done their research. So it was a uh, it was a good experience. It was hard fought. It was definitely not as it is today selling to developers. It was a lot of educating developers once they knew they wanted to buy. I wouldn't say use the word depressing, but like they were very disconnected from the business. And so you get a lot of evaluators who would come inbound. We had kind of what was a PLG motion before it was known as PLG. And they'd say, hey, I'd love to buy this at Bank X where I work, but I have no idea how to do that. Like we don't get asked what we'd like to buy we don't have budgets. We basically go hands out to, uh, you know, some chief architect or direct, my director who I don't even know when I want to buy something. And, and uh, a funny story, a large bank that became a big customer of ours, one of our breakthroughs was we found it, we somehow got our hands on an internal PDF at that organization for how to buy something. If you were in the IT department, which at the time developers <laughs> were in the IT department, what? and we would do demos for teams of developers and say, they'd say, oh, but we can't buy. We say, no, no, we've got this PDF. Let us show you how to buy this. And, you know, over the course of that run, it was a six-year run before we got acquired. We got into the 20s of millions before we were acquired, but it did start to turn. You started to see digital teams come into play and developers starting to have more of a seat at the table. And I think that was a lot of the interest that ultimately got us acquired was, hey, traditional, more operational tooling companies starting to come to us and saying, hey, we need to get to developers. Like, we don't have relationships with developers. We're starting to lose deals because developers are being invited in. I was like, where were you guys four or five years ago? I got I to gotta use the help. So it was a great experience. It was very hard fought. And I would say coming into Sneak, it was kind of that polar opposite where it was clear the developer had arrived as a major decision maker and has continued to increase. Before we even get to Sneak, I have a, have a question on one thing you said there, which was having that PDF for the champion to kind of go into the org and say, hey, this is how it works and stuff like you were doing that back then. That sort of champion enablement, I imagine it's something that's still relevant now, right? Maybe it's changed from that PDF, but like, do you still have collateral like that that you think about? Yeah, everything's a pendulum, right? It swings to the left, it swings to the right. Obviously, with the macroeconomic conditions and a lot more scrutiny, 
I think buyers got away with a lot the last couple of years. Take the economy out of it. It was like, hey, everyone's going to be an IPO company in three years. So spend away. And now maybe it's gone too far the other way where you see CFOs and CIOs intricately involved in decision making process. So there's a lot more of that champion and coaching. But now it's more like they think they still know the process to buy something and it's changed. And so it's a lot more coaching around hey, your process may have changed or are you sure more people don't need to be involved? And yes, let's practice together. Back then it was literally like, I don't know how to buy a pencil here. Like (laughs) they have the developers in the basement. We don't get asked about anything. It was crazy. So that has definitely changed for the better. (laughs) Well, so life is good, right? You're CRO of a company that's scaling really well and you could do a lot of things. The VCs are happy with you. Everybody's happy with you. Like you could do many things. And you joined Sneak. I mean, what's going through your head? Why join Sneak? What caused that decision? Zero Turnaround got acquired in December of 2017. You know, it was a hard-fought win. It was a win, but it was a hard-fought win. I actually took a buyout on December 1st, and my first child was going to be born on December 9th. And I convinced myself that I was going to take, you know, oh, I'm going to go do something slow and sleepy. I'll go work at IBM for two years. (laughs) On December 13th, I'm like, I'm never going to work again in my entire life. And I'm like taking interviews from the hospital and my (laughs) wife wants to like absolutely kill me, but that's just like how I'm wired. Right. And yeah, I was going to go do something a little bit less like early stage. And I had actually done an early stage company before zero turnaround that had also gotten acquired. So I was pretty, I had kind of a niche for that. And so I was getting a lot of recruiting calls about early stage stuff. I was just like, I'm going to look at some later stage stuff. And then a recruiter reached out to me about the sneak opportunity. So it was a little bit right place, right time, where it was the first time I was kind of on the market in a bunch of years. But a great mentor of mine, a guy named Izzy Azari, he's the CEO of Mabel. He gave me some advice because I was freaking out again. I thought I was never going to work again. He's like, find something that fixes the biggest problem from your last job, but still allows you to replicate those skills. Meaning don't go do MarTech. You've built up all this understanding of developers. You've built up all this understanding of the space. Don't go start selling to CMOs because good idea, good company, like you're going to have to start from the beginning. So that advice was very much in my head. And I started to look at Sneak. The products we had at Zero Turnaround were fantastic. No one was getting fired for not buying them. So the cyber side of that really caught my eye at Sneak, meaning, okay, I know how to sell to developers. I understand what motivates developers. I understand how you know, what's important to developers. I love working with developers as much as some people would think that's surprising for a salesperson to say, but it was like, okay, that cyber aspect brought an immediacy and an importance. That was one big thing. And then when I started to look at the numbers, you know, we had a free version of the product then, you know, I think they told me it was like 200,000 free version (laughs) developers using the product was probably 80,000, but uh, good selling by Guypo on that one. But just to see 80,000 developers volunteering to use a security tool, I knew enough to say, okay, developers aren't going to use a product unless they love it, right? Like they need to be like blood, sweat, and tears into the product. And that was like, wow, that's really important to me. That says something to me. You came in as a sales leader with the title, but then at the same time, you had to do IC work, right? Like this was very much an IC role. I just want to go through, what were you thinking at the time? Were you ready for that? Did you miss the tooling, the org structure around you? Like all that sort of stuff, like you're starting from zero again. There's a lot of smiles and cries around that, right? I would say one, I knew eyes wide open I would be doing it. And you know, I know some of this is, hey, advice to founders. If you're looking for your first VP of sales or director of sales at that stage and they won't get that hands-on, that's a red flag to me. Because one, it's at a certain level, it's fun, right? You get to go be an individual salesperson. You only have to worry about your problems. 
I love people management. I love people leadership, but it's a refreshing after you were, you know, had four layers between you and the customer potentially for that last year. But that's how you learn and build a methodology. If I don't go do it 50 times myself, how am I going to teach someone else to do it? How am I going to build a process for scale? I think some of the errors I see in early stage founders is they get so wrapped up finding that, oh my God, this person's resume is unbelievable, but they show up and they're like, where's my stuff? And you're like, there's no stuff. It's like HubSpot, CRM, and you. Like, what do you want to do? You know? Um, So I knew it was coming. I love that. Yeah. There's days you walk in and you're like, oh my God, like, you know, we've got to do this today. But there's also a lot of fun there. I still remember the first $18,000 deal I closed and it still is renewed every year. And I track that deal because that means something to me. That's how I can look new hires in the eye and say like, trust me, this is going to work, right? Obviously, we've made tons of iterations on our process since then, but I think that's a really important part of it. I want to go into that 18,000 deal. But before that, you mentioned for founders, that's what they should be looking for. If they hire a sales leader, like they got to have that willingness to dive in. How do you suss that out though? Because you can ask all the questions, right? They could have all the right profile. They could say all the right things. Is there any questions or any, is it through references or what do you suggest to really kind of figure that out? Yeah. One, I think you want to find people if you can, you know, and again, I love giving people their first start, but that may be a little different. If you are like, I think I've got something great and I need a VP of sales. Have they done this in the past? Have they scaled this mountain before? And then I love backdoor references because I think if you talk to the CEO of Big Method, the first place I did this to, the CFO at Zero Turnaround, and now Guypo in five years when I go do the next one or 20 years to go do the next one, they would all say I kind of approached it the same way. And so I think that validates it, right? And I think you can ask questions like, what would you do in the first 30, 60, 90 days? Like, I always advocate when I do a lot of advising with early stage people, when they found that right person, I think it's also being aligned with the founder or the CEO. Guy Poe and I did a mutual 30, 60, 90 day plan where we went back and forth of like, what do we want to accomplish? But at the end of the day, we both signed off on that. So we were both very aware of what we were going to be doing. So I think one is doing your research on what the person's done, doing that backdoor to validate it. And also what kind of references does that person bring? I think a differentiate for me for Sneak, I want to knock sales leaders. I love, I love all my sales leaders, but it's like, oh, this is Jerry. I used to work for him. Here's my reference. He's great. You know, he's great. Closer, absolute closer. Or it's like, oh, I'm going to give you a VC for my last company. I'm going to give you my CFO from my last company. And they're going to attest that the reason to hire me is not what I'm doing when everything's working, but how's he going to react when things go poorly? And they're going to say that guy stays in the pocket and he owns his losses and he looks to get better. So that's a big part of it. If you don't have that perfect fit of someone who's done it two or three times, I'm always biased towards going with someone where this is going to be a life-changing event for them, like an experienced senior manager, and this is their first chance to be a director and maybe get a good slug of equity, or a seasoned sales director, and this is going to be their first time to be a VP and get a good slug of equity, because I think that, <laughs> that terror of opportunity drives people. If you've got someone who doesn't really need it, I'm not saying that won't work out, but that can get tough because there's so much work to be done. Yeah. I want to dive into those first sales at Sneak. You know, you mentioned the $18,000 deal, but really kind of whether you mention names or not, right, just go into specific anecdotes around what were those first sales conversations like? How'd you find the customers? How do you close them? How'd that all work? 
we had a good flow of inbound leads. So that was one of the drivers for me. I love seeing product market fit. To me, product market fit is a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue. I, ARR, I know we've talked about this. Ed talks about this a lot. I like seeing inbound leads because it's like, okay, I can go be the best I see in the world and go cold call three people and get them to buy. But ultimately, that's not going to be a repeatable process potentially. So we had inbound leads coming on. We had free users coming in. And I kind of started, again, I, I have a good grounding in PLG and PLS, product-led sales, and how do you start seeing who wants to buy? So I started just doing some A-B testing on those as well, seeing, hey, if I reach out to a director with this, reach out to a manager with that, is that going to work? We did have one sales rep who I hired, I inherited, so he had a pipeline so I could kind of get involved there. But then I started saying like, hey, give me every third inbound lead and let me start going. And I think a testament to our team, like that first 18K deal I closed, that was an on-site in New York and Guy Poe was there with me. Our founder was there with me. It's important to me. I think this is a lesson for the founder and that first VP of sales. You got to spend a lot of time together and they need to understand and see what you're going through to close a deal and what you potentially need going forward to close a deal. So, that, you know, we didn't go to New York for that meeting as an example, but like that was one of the five meetings we did. And of course, Guy Poe was doing his thing and just, <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, okay, uh, I think I could talk here. Um, you know, and you just, that helps me learn because I could see how he would pitch the product and the, and the things that he would key upon. And I could see how customers would react. And then we did a lot of debriefing. We would move really fast. We enabled everyone to make quick, fast decisions, but we would definitely always make time to have, I'm talking two, three days, times a week, just 30 minutes. Like, hey, what's been going on? How's that working? How did that go? big culture of bad news early. So if something's not going right, it's blameless, but like raise your hand quickly and talk about it. I think that was a lot of what we focused on to get those first five, 10, 15 wins. You mentioned going on site and doing this. We're now in this remote world, right? Everyone's doing Zoom calls. They're doing these things. Do you recommend for those early deals that people should go in? And I guess my question actually is, Sometimes right now, when someone is talking to a champion or something like that, they'll say, hey, listen, they're working from home, right? So what am I supposed to do? Like show up in their city and be like, hey, let's go grab coffee or something, right? What do you recommend? So if you're having some success, my guess is you're going to have some power centers. And stereotypically, it's going to be like New York and California, right? Or maybe it's not. Maybe you have some SaaS platform that's just like setting the Midwest on fire. Whatever it is, I think you can be smart about that. So the two ways we would always look on it is we had a red line where if a deal was over a certain threshold, we want to go on site. And look, everyone lost that ability for a couple of years. I think that ability is back. And I think people want to go see you and want to go do things. And the last couple of big conferences I've been to, I'm sure the same for you, Shomik, like people are excited to see each other. So one, I would have that. Like if it's over this or it could be that important for us, we should try to get there. The second is, okay, if it's an 18K deal, but I have a ton going on in New York City, set up seven meetings over two days in New York City. And now that 18K deal, it's not a loss leader to go see them, right? And you are getting product feedback. and you. So we would do a lot of blitz stuff like that. Send in someone from product from Israel to New York. I'd go to New York. Maybe you know someone else would be there and we would just be booked. We'd end up at Bold Start Office, debrief there, and you almost shouldn't be going just for one meeting unless it's a really big opportunity. The second thing I would say is as you hire early on, I am a big believer of hiring for a lot of skill and a lot of familiarity early on. And I think that was one thing I was able to 
get alignment on it, sneak, and I've seen in my past too. There's going to be a time where you can hire for economics and hire entry-level people and you can train them up and they're going to do amazing things. Early on, I want really talented family because one, I don't have the time to get to know you. We need to skip right to the phase where we can go in a conference room and scream at each other for 20 minutes and then walk out and be like, okay, I'll eat a dinner tomorrow night. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah. There's nothing wrong with not having that, but that early on, I want that. And then I want people where, so we hired a, a woman named Amanda Parks. So I know, you know, and she was a director of sales for me at a previous place, very close to me. You know, I had worked with her forever. It allowed me, I could send her somewhere or mm -hmm. I could go and she could handle other things. Right. And so it gives you the scale once you're ready to hire to not just be the only person who can like go on site somewhere, et cetera. I remember there's always a, Ed loves this anecdote where we sent Amanda to New York and he kept coming up with meetings for her. He's like, no, you got to meet the guy from this. You got to meet the guy from that. And she was ended up there like four or five days, but he was so impressed with her. He could immediately see she could handle these meetings. That immediately opened up so much more for that trip for us versus, look, if you hire entry-level people early or SDRs early, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're going to have to go do all of that. And that hurts when you're trying to move so fast and do as much as possible. Yeah. For the early teams and founders listening, they just heard you talk about inbound and you were taking these inbound leads and you were converting them. But I know you did outbound, right? There was an outbound component to it. And so talk a little bit about that, right? Because it's not all of it was just processing inbound leads, right? So how did you structure that? Totally. Although I will challenge and say as a sales product marketing CEO founder team, should really be pushing yourself, in my opinion, early on to develop an inbound lead funnel, even if it's interest and or free users, et cetera, et cetera. There will be a time where you have to rely on outbound. I would recommend trying to defer that as much as possible. And I also just see a lot of genius founders immediately want to skip to that outbound phase and let their product leaders and their marketing leaders off the hook around creating a funnel. We did do outbound, but a lot of the outbound we did was almost like what we would call go wide, Shomik, which is like a free user comes in. It's a developer. I know this developer does not want to talk to Ethan Schechter, the sales guy, <laughs> <laughs> but three levels above that individual at the organization, they may be interested to hear that they've organically got developers signing up for Sneak. And so I may reach out to that person. Now, I think you can have a shared attribution model because I think marketing should get credit for that as well. But to me, that's the kind of smart outbounding you should be trying to do or knowing your vertical strengths. Okay, we're doing really well in retail. Let's only go outbound in retail. My danger is when people go all outbound right away, when they don't know the personas they're trying to sell to yet, they don't know what real pain those people are having, and they end up saying outbound was a failure, but they're actually doing great tactical outbounding, their messaging was great, the process was great. They were just going after the wrong people and trying to sell it the wrong way. And what inbounding and what working on any type of warmer lead gives you is a lot of at-bats to figure that out. And also a lot of opportunities to figure out what the user of your product is going to care about versus what the buyer of your product is going to care about. And that's when you can get a repeatable sales methodology going. That's once you figure that out, that's when you can start hiring entry-level people and just say, hey, just say this. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? yeah. Or if this person comes in, go down this talk. Because that was one of the strengths and challenges of Sneak is we had multiple buying centers. We still do. Developers could buy our tool in a modern company. 
DevOps could buy our tool at a regimented company. Security could buy our tool at a traditional company. And they're all going to resonate a different way with our product. And you have to sell to them in a different way for each one of those products. But you're only going to get really good at that if you figure that out. Just hard to do that without Bound because there's less opportunity and it's longer and it's harder. But yeah, that was the type of outbound we did. That was a ton of useful advice. In terms of that early org and how you think about structuring early orgs and giving advice to founders there, what did you do at Sneak? And one thing I, I remember you always say, I think Guypo says as well, is like, while R&D was definitely powering stuff and leading the organization forward at those kind of early days, maybe at the same time, like everyone, product and eng had to listen to sales calls and go into meetings and stuff. So like, talk a little bit about that structure. I give the team that, you know, Anair, our chief product officer, Guy, Anton, our VP of engineering at the time, Gev, our CEO, like they had already developed this culture and I innovated on it. But I think we had a really strong kind of circular feedback loop between sales, product, and engineering. The first thing was marketing was owned by product because we felt like our product was our marketing engine at that point. And so we wanted to keep that really focused. And to your point, engineering and product leaders came to every sales forecast. And if there were technical blockers on calls or on opportunities, they were expected to be involved. And that means being on calls with customers, et cetera, et cetera. And then every two weeks, the entire sales team would go to the developer standup and would hear, we actually had an SE who would like translate <laughs> the engineering milestones to like, hey, you know, when you have that issue, when you're on a demo and this happens, well, now that's fixed. And the whole sales team would be like, <laughs> yes, that's awesome, right? And, oh, you can now go sell to people who use .NET in this instance. And so there was just a lot of appreciation and focus in that regard. And so that was a big thing. And then back to that earlier thing about being on the same page, I mentioned with myself and Guybo, that was the same for any big rock, any like changing pricing or we're in a huge deal or et cetera. We were exhaustive in terms of internal communication because I think that early, you've just got a bunch of alpha dogs who all want to read the world their way. <laughs> and if you're not communicating and say something goes well, but even worse, say something goes wrong, it's very easy for all five or four of those people to leave that instance saying, this is what happened. And then they go back to their team. This is what happened. And the sales guy goes back to his four sales. This is what happened. And now you've got this fractured feeling across the org. And that's where you see, I think, a lot of these challenges with go-to-market and engineering and product orgs at early stage companies. What we did is like we weren't leaving the room till everyone was on the same page of what happened, good, bad, or indifferent. So whether people were happy about that or mad, you everyone went back to their teams with like, hey, this is what happened. That was super impactful. Again, we ended up hiring in, in year two an amazing a VP of marketing, Lee Merrigan Moore, who did amazing things at Sneak. But like for the first year, I spent way more time with Anair, our chief product officer, than I did on anything with marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Because getting that roadmap to a place where it was actually pumping out things that won deals was tremendously impactful for us. I want to get to the early stage founder advice, because I think you have a lot of things to say there. There's this one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is when Sneak started, it wasn't like there weren't other competitors. In fact, there were other well-funded, even better funded competitors that were out there. And so I imagine, one, there was this developer motion that obviously was showing, hey, usage, people are using it. Again, that inbound sort of motion. But you still, I imagine, had to 
communicate that thoughtfully in terms of what's the product differentiation. You'd probably still get into RFP scenarios where you had to highlight that. How'd you work through that? How'd you position? I think the learning lesson for me early on, again, I'd come from a developer company. So, you know, this is when like shift left wasn't a cliche. Like, I think this goes back to what I was talking about, understanding your personas, understanding what's going to resonate to them. And I think in a lot of places early on, we were going into like banks, places like that and speaking that message. And we sounded like anarchists, like <laughs> security team would be like, oh, the developers don't care anything about security, but I should just give it all to them. But then I still get fired, right? If if, if something happens, they'd be like, yeah. You know? <laughs> so I think we started to make progress when we had enough data and enough wins and losses to realize like, hey, just a small example, and this is getting a little tactical, but early on you talk to a security team, instead of saying shift left, you say like, hey, we're going to help you mitigate risk from moving down the chain. Why did that matter? Because it makes the security person feel like they're in control. They're uh, mitigating risk from moving down the chain by enabling developers to start getting involved in security versus shifting left and giving all of this up to developers. That's a small nuanced thing, but you can make a whole slide deck that paints sneak in two different ways based on that. That's, I'd say, positioning and understanding how to talk to people. I'd say the other thing is learning how to run a land and expand model early on. I think, again, and this is where I get wary of outbound early, too early. Again, you have this one big top-down win that got us a big ARR customer, and all of a sudden we want to start doing that everywhere. And we're not built for that yet. We have some big companies and Google's on our website, so I can use their name. If we had tried to go do our biggest deal with Google in 2018, they would have eaten us alive. Right. <laughs> with roadmap requests and, you know, the security questionnaires and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we probably would have ended up getting something, but not have been happy with it and been really derailed with our core roadmap. And so I think very early on we picked up, hey, Get a deal with the best team at Google. Get a deal with the best team at Company X. Do another one and do packs and kind of get known within that organization. Buys you time to understand what they need. It allows you to build stuff for them over time. And then ultimately, when you are ready to do that big enterprise deal with them, you're just so much more equipped to handle it. You don't want to be the startup that's there to support Google versus... Right. <laughs> The startup that can build a great scalable roadmap also has Google as a great customer and partner. You've heard me say this a lot. I'm a huge believer of trading dollars for speed early on. Your earliest 50 customers are always going to expect the biggest discounts from you because you were the cute, scrappy startup and they patted you on the head and said, oh, you guys, okay, we'll give you 20 grand for a thousand seats. Those people will be your references. They'll do all that kind of stuff for you. Just get them in the boat and get them to be advocates for you. And you're going to get so many more customers because they're going to be impressed that those people hang out with you. So sometimes early stage startups have this kind of weird conundrum that they're in, which is, you know, the sales advice that you hear on podcasts, you read about, it's like, you got to sell value. You got to talk to the value. You got to talk about the use cases, things like that. But then actually the early adopters, frankly, like they are so deep in the weeds that like that value sort of thing, they already know the value, right? So they, they want to see features. They want to understand that. So like talk about balancing that in those early days. I think that's where if you can get a diversification of companies, I think this was one of the things that really helped us is again, we were selling to enterprise companies early on that maybe you wouldn't think of as bleeding edge adopters. We were just selling to the right imprints or business units at those organizations. And so you get enough 
people in your buying ecosystem that care about value and care about features. And that so you can start testing out both at the same time. I think also when there's feature requests, this is where having product involved and aware of all of the deals, because we were able to stack up one, if it's going to be a huge deal, we'll do the feature early on, right? But then, hey, this feature has been requested five times. So by doing this feature, we're not coming off our mission. We're not hurting ourselves in terms of the long-term North Star vision or roadmap of the company, because these features are only going to help drive that value. And then ultimately, I think you have to have a couple hard conversations. We definitely had some testy, you know, you would have times where you would push for a feature and engineering would make the feature and then you wouldn't win the deal. Those were not, those were not great conversations. And, you know, you have to take some ownership for that. And as long as you know, hey, we're going to take some risks from time to time, but we generally should aim to be, if we're going to do a feature to win a deal, it should be repeatable and it should help other customers down the line. And then again, I think you can get lands at big companies that are going to be more test you on your value proposition. You can get design partners that can help you with that. And we did, I think, a good job of that as well. Yeah. So Guy Poe had a question for you, actually, once I asked him and he said, Ethan goes around, he's always saying time kills all deals, but when it's early days, the product actually may not be ready. And so how do you balance being aggressive to get that deal closed versus kind of keeping them warm and keeping that relationship warm for when the product is ready? So one, I am, and Guy Poe is a kindred spirit in this. He never wants to lose a single deal in his entire life, but I love creative pricing and packaging. I love risk mitigation. These are things you cannot do as you scale and you're going to have auditors and you're going to, and again, I'm not advocating doing anything unethical by any means, but I love outs. I love extended payment terms. I love putting stuff into contracts. If we were going to plan on building it anyway, I like bets on ourselves with that kind of stuff. And I also think it puts a good piece of pressure on a product and engineering team. If they know, hey, we have to deliver X feature by this day. What you don't want is a team where one, you don't have the sales function and engineering and product are running way faster, or you have the sales team running hard and product and engineering aren't shipping anything. I like everyone being in on these kind of things. So, I mean, I could show you some contracts where that would, you know, (laughs) one of your eyebrows might fall off. And then if that doesn't work out, okay, why didn't that work out? We can't do that again. But what we found is we would make bets on ourselves, deliver on them. And we start getting more and more confident that we could do that. And again, I think trading dollars for speeds. It's like, okay, this feature that's 85% in your environment is not going to be ready for a year. So how about I give you an 85% discount in year one and year two goes up to 75% and year three, you pay 100%. So it reflects in the contract that you can only use this for 15%. And in return, I want you to be a reference call and I want you to do a monthly call with our product team to give them feedback. Now you got a logo. Now you got ARR. Like, why? Let's go. Like, let's get let's creative. Yeah, figure it yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and companies are like, you'll do that. And you're like, yeah, because we're going to deliver on this stuff. And now you have to do that. And as the founder and the CEO, I challenge you are you policing your engineering and product teams the same way you're going to police the sales team? I see that as a failure point in a lot of places. And credit to Geico, I think you did a great job on that. We talked about contracts there, and I actually, before the end of a recent quarter, you got on the phone with me, and thank you. And that's how yeah. the quarter was going well, because you got on the phone with me. <laughs> but, but, uh, 
Or maybe I just wanted to forget for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the questions that I asked you there was we were coming up against an enterprise contract that had a really strange clause. And in general, there's these weird clauses, right? There's like uncapped liability. There's like a cyber insurance policy that means the world. They're going to take your firstborn child, like whatever, like all these sort of things, right? Like what's your framework for knowing when to really be like, no, we can't accept this versus accepting that potential risk? So I think your role is to push to be as aggressive as possible, but I think you need to have checks and balances outside of yourself. So as an example, we had a great GC at the time, was a consultant at the time who came on long-term. Ken McCaskill, our CFO today, was an advisor back then. And even like Ed Sim and Tom Hilmy were on the board at the time. If there's a big thing that we're going to go for, I want everyone aligned. Like I don't want what, the sales guy made that decision? Like, I want to go, hey, Ed, are you good with this? Hey, Ken, are you good with this? Hey, Stephanie, are you good with this? Here's why I think we should do this. If they're like, no, I've seen this before and this could be seriously detrimental to like the exit of the company, you got to go and push back. But if everyone's aligned and they're like, yeah, it's worth the risk, then let's go do it. So basically, like there's certain times where you have to embrace that risk because as long as people are comfortable with that being something that is a further out scenario. I've gotten acquired twice. You can go back and renegotiate those contracts when you need to. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> they won't like it. They'll be pissed off, but you can do that. You can figure that out. The other thing is you mentioned enterprise competitors. They're not going to do any of that stuff. So a lot of your advantage is you're the guy running around their ankles, getting them all confused. And you know it's going to take them six weeks to get that request processed. That's how we won a lot of our deals against like a black duck who was like kind of the incumbent. They were just so slow and we would offer 19 different options before they had offered one. And we'd be like, hey, don't you want to get going here? <laughs> yeah. So move fast. Again, you can become scaled. We have a lot of rigor now and it's the right thing for the place we are at Sneak today. You can have that risk early on, in my opinion. Yeah. So Guypo had another question here actually for you. So he added around hiring SDRs early. And he said, basically, like, how do you see that interplay between inbound and PLG versus SDRs? And can hiring SDRs too early cause damage? I think back to where I just gave you a little pushback around outbound. The founder bias I see is we will hire the sales leader. He will sit in a different room from the rest of the company. He will hire SDRs and they will go outbound and they will deliver revenue or we will get rid of them. And I think Guypo is probably guiding you there. Now, down the path, I think me and Guypo's view of SDRs probably diverges a little bit. And I think, look, all founders have a little agita when they hire a sales leader. Why? Because they have to admit their product isn't perfect. <laughs> in a genius founder, and, and this is something I have a lot of respect for, I've never birthed the product, but they all want it to be Steve Jobs or Atlassian. <laughs> and at the end of the day, when you hire a storyteller, you're having to admit that that's not the case. I think at a certain evolution, it is very healthy to have a large and fruitful SDR population. I think it's great for culture. I think it builds an internal grow from within model. But early on, I think he and I are aligned that I think the bias is just to have the salesperson work on that versus like the salesperson making sure that the product roadmap is right. And I think early on, especially if you have inbound leads, you don't want that layer between where an SDR actually has to get involved. Like you want your salespeople, especially early on, also becoming experts of these personas and these plate. And if it goes to an SDR, sometimes you lose that. So yeah, I would be wary early on until you really know what your repeatable persona and process is. I'm not a huge advocate of, I would rather hire another rep 
and get more data and build my bench of really talented sales leaders or sales professionals, because also my enablement's probably not going to be good. So who's going to train the SDRs early on too? Right. Yeah. This maps a bit to early sales playbooks. And this is a founder who came up with this question when I said you were going to be on the pod and basically was asking, how does that early sales playbook sales script work? Should I be the one that delivers that to the first sales hire, sales leader, whoever that is? Do we work at it in tandem? Does that person tell me what it is? Like, what's your advice on that? I think the best thing you can do is like, yes, let me run the first five or 10 for you. But it's like, Ethan, I want to show you what we're doing today. Don't bias it with like, and we want you to do exactly what we're doing because that's incredibly alienating. It's like you wouldn't hire a VP of product and then say, I hired you to do exactly what I was doing. No, but a lot of times technical founders, like our first time founders, it's very easy for them to communicate with VPs of engineering or product because that's where they came from. And they've probably had the pain of not being enabled. So I think on the sales side, it's like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what I think is working. Let me show you the first five. Then I want to hear your feedback. And then let's like kind of create where we want to go with this together. And over time, you kind of more and more pass the baton to that sales leader to kind of run and own. Ideally, I'm a big believer that you want to find someone, again, who's either sold in your space or to this persona, because then you're going to have a little more confidence. Like, I think it was really confidence inspiring for Guypo that I'm like, yes, I've sold to developers for seven years. And in every interview I had with him, and he interviewed me a lot before he gave me the job, I had all the right answer because I just know developers, right? So like, that's a lot easier for him to pass the baton than if he had hired someone from, I don't know, AI, Internet of Things back then, which was big. They don't know anything about developers. That's nerve wracking for a founder. But I think you want to start with that. Let me show you what you're doing because there's probably some really goodness to it and keep that. But then now you have a baseline of where we are. Where do you want to take this? I think I know your advice, by the way, for founders, which is kind of that trade dollars for speed. But I actually want to know your advice for those kind of early sales hires, because you mentor a ton of sales reps. What are you constantly telling these folks? So a couple of things. So one, it's like you need to have a seat at the table with engineering and product. You need to be involved. Your feedback needs to be heard. If they're not listening to you about this, this is tough. You have to have a relationship where your boss, if you're reporting the founder, they can challenge you and they should challenge you, but you need to be able to challenge them. This needs to really have that process. You have to have relationships with the VCs that are invested. That is a huge part for me. I had a monthly with Ed Sam. Again, I had a monthly with Tom Yomi. They were intricately involved. I was always in New York and the founder needs to be okay with that and understand that like, hey, I'm going to talk to Ed about something that's not going well. And you're going to hear about it from Ed because you need second party validation that I'm not crazy. And Ed's seen this a hundred times or vice versa. I would get a lot of feedback from Guy from our investors saying like, hey, you pitched to a buddy of ours last week and it didn't go well. And here's why. And you might not want to hear it that day, but that's invaluable. So have relationships with the board, have relationships with your investors. Your founder should be finding deals for you. This is really hard. There is a lot of sales bias out there from founders, again, who just don't understand sales and they're not meaning to do it, but they kind of treat that sales rep or that sales leader as like a second class citizen. And meanwhile, like the new engineering leaders are coming over to their house for dinner. <laughs> you are as much of the team as anyone else at that organization. So I really challenge people a lot on that. And then I challenge on like, what's the work you're doing to get better every day? Because we really do need to be getting better every day. 
don't come in here and use your pitch from your last company that worked well. Like you have to, your first question you ask me, you have to drop back down. You are an IC. You are not the chief revenue officer. One day you can get back to that. That is not where you are today. So don't just bring all the stuff that worked at your old company and try to run that again here. You need to be a sponge. You need to relearn. Yeah. I want to move into the scaling aspect of this because a lot of people have these questions. And so let's say at that, you know, call it 200, 300K ARR, things are working, right? But now you got to get to a million. That's the bogey that always everyone talks about. Get to a million. What needs to happen then? What changes do you go through? What things do you need to think about? I mean, that's where if you feel like you see that path and you're there, that's when I would be hiring that first VP of sales. That will do that. And I'm a big believer of hiring again for talent early. I would go for a hands-on VP before I would hire two sales reps. Now the CEO is managing two sales reps. He barely knew sales himself. That's what I would be looking for. And then I would be looking to win ugly. Like I think, again, there's plenty of time to get your metrics to this bespoke place where, you know, your CAC is great and your NRR is great and all that. If that million gets you that funding, have that VP of sales hire three reps so that if we finish at 80% of our goal, we definitely get to that million. You can always get skinny later. Why does it have to be perfect early on? Again, some of that product bias gets into this with founders, I think, where it's like, well, I would never ship a product that wasn't efficient. This is a different animal. What about now from that, I'll say one to 10, in Sneak's case, it was even a little bit faster than that, but that year of scale, which was just wild, right? For the outside, it's just like, oh my God crazy. But inside, there's stuff happening. You need to keep up with that breakneck speed. What were core challenges and tactics that you used? I mean, core challenges is your revenue is just vastly outpacing process and structure that you can put in place. And other core challenges in stressful situations like that, huge distractions internally can derail your organization. Most of the early stage startups I see fail, it's because of internal distractions and failures not external distractions and failures. And so a couple tactical things I would recommend, again, hiring for strength early, not trying to do this on the backs of junior people. Number two would be, I love someone in rev ops or sales ops or finance ops that can be a generalist for the entire go-to-market. One of the biggest wastes of time I always see is it's like, well, we're, things are happening and we're having these crazy meetings. And like, the VP of products brings his data and the VP of engineering brings her data. And, and three-fourths of the meeting is everyone arguing over whose data is accurate. The minute you bring in someone from RevOps, they can say, hey, I'll be the neutral arbiter of the data. Or it's like, hey, Ethan, go do our giant Excel sheet for the goal for next year because we have to show it to Ed Sim in three. Ed doesn't want me working on an Excel spreadsheet. That is not good. Like, let's, let's <laughs> right. get, I can interpret the data for you. I can tell you what the data tells me. I can tell you. My recommendation based off this data is X. You do not want me working, oh, this is hard-coded. I don't know if it's hard-coded or it's a formula. That's not why you hired me. So getting that ops person in early that can own the data and get, now you go to a meeting and it's those important people and you can say, here's the data. It's uniform. It's clean. It's right. You guys now debate what it means. That's huge. So I would advocate, I've always brought in sales ops or rev ops very early. I cannot advocate that in year one. The thing I focus with my sales team on more than anything is we can have zero internal infighting, none. The second we are spending time on stupid crap, like whose deal should this be, or this was my lead, or 
The EMEA rep took that is a second you can't be in front of a customer. I don't want to hear a single thing. And so what I'll do mechanisms like 25% of your variable comp is based on the entire company number. So every time a dollar comes in, everyone is getting 25 cents of that dollar. And that's my payment to you to never hear you. I have a no <laughs> tolerance zone on that kind. Of, I don't want to hear about territory fights. It's like there's five reps here and we've got the globe. So what do you want to talk to me about your named account list? Uh, Amanda Parks, Ken Mellert, Shlomi Cohen, like leaders who have worked for me, they probably roll their eyes and say it's the most annoying thing in the world. But I will just flat out not have those conversations. <laughs> there was a year where they all did their territories without me. I was like, I think you guys are making a huge waste of time. I'm not going to be part of this because then you're going to want me to make all these decisions and get, I'm not spending my time on this. I'm going to be in front of customers. <laughs> now, over time, yeah, you have to have segmentation. You have to have territories. That's stuff, of course. But you're trying to go from zero to 1 million or zero to 4 million or 4 to 20. Like, what are we spending our time on? So that's something I'm just huge on. We all have to support each other. This is going to be really hard. So there is no time for internal fighting. I remember when Ed would start showing me certain slides and it would be like the multi-product attach rate. I forget what ARR threshold it was, but it was there was definitely a focus where, you know, all of a sudden it went from, hey, we're doing one thing to now we're starting to sell a platform. And I'm just curious, that's a, such a different motion, right? So like, how do you train the reps on that? Or how do you kind of even approach that? What did you do as a team? Well, I would say the first thing is this goes back to that unbelievably important alignment between product and sales and engineering, because it's made so much easier when the next module of the platform still is meant for the buyer of the first module of the platform. And I think one of the things we nailed with our first two to three modules of the sneak platform was it was the same technical user and the same buyer. And where you see that go wrong is like, oh, we have a separate sales team that sells that. Again, when you're data dog size, that sounds like a great idea. When you're got under 10 sales reps or 20 sales reps and you're trying to roll out your next big product, I want it to be the same buyer, the same technical user, that same value. And so that made it easier. I also think a good way to do that is you start with it as an add-on. Buyers have a lot less expectation of an add-on. Like you could have the same product. And if you call it a product, they're like, it doesn't have this, 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 this. And you're like, hey, this is an add-on. It's 30% of, oh, this is sweet. This is sick. You got like the technical team all jazzed up about it. And then what's great is you can attach a bunch of that add-on and then you get a ton of feedback on the add-on. So then ideally when you're ready to raise that price and you're actually ready to call it a product, you fixed a lot of the issues that would have made people push back against buying it if you had never rolled it out as an add-on first, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So final two questions I have for you. So one is actually on through that scaling journey, right? The go-to-market, I imagine, needs to continuously be reinvented. Not Maybe not continuously, but at certain stages, right? It needs to be retooled, needs to be reconfigured. And so what's the best way for teams to kind of manage through those transitions? I've always said somewhere between 50 and 80 sales reps, I think you do want to start looking at a really standardized sales enablement program with probably like a sales leader. I also think somewhere between... 15 to 30 sales reps, you want to bring in a pretty strong sales engineering leader. I see where some of that stuff has failed and I've made that mistake is waiting too long and I'm still managing the SEs way too long into the journey. And then it's like, well, our technical selling methodology hasn't evolved. No crap, because like I barely knew enough to be doing that job in the first place. Or it just becomes hard 
to up level the sales team because you don't have the resources to train them on something new. So I think that's a big part of it. And then I think it's like letting data drive your focus. It's those attach rates, it's renewal rates. And if something is working, do more of it. But the minute you see that data start to go in the wrong way, it's probably time to change our paradigm. And it's probably time to do that at a big level. I'd say the other thing I've always liked, some people don't love this. I am a big fan of overlays, especially for new processes or new products. Have one or two people that you can attach to the overall number of that product and kind of be a free resource for the sales team. But it also kind of, Peter McKay always talks about this shield the field. It keeps the core sales team away from the shiny new penny. And it gives you someone who can really come back to product and the sales team and say, hey, this is what needs to change or hey, this is working, this isn't. And the sales team's in favor because you can double comp the way you structure something like that. So that's another big part of, I think, how you can up-level your process over time. Yeah. Final question for you is you've scaled yourself now in multiple orgs. One of the things I think is always very impressive that at least us at Bold Start, you know, reason we're always calling you up and asking for your advice is because like you can literally go and talk with a founder who has just a team of six engineers around them and talk with them about tactical stuff. You can also go and talk to the company at 100 of ARR and be like, hey, here's how you can go through things. And so what tactics have you used to kind of scale yourself from being able to go that IC level to manager, you know, <laughs> kind of level type stuff? Yeah, again, I think it's being eyes wide open about what's acceptable at every stage and having a discipline around if I'm talking to which persona, the advice I'm going to give. So the advice I'm going to give someone, you know, all the stuff I talk, be crazy with contracts, do this, this, and that. I wouldn't say that to a pre-IPO leader because that's probably going to get half your deals unbooked and your CFO is going to want to let you go. And I think people are too rigid in their methodology. Like I think where I see a lot of bad advice is I give the same advice to that early stage person you know, where it's like got to be perfection early on. And then as the same as I do late, I think you can be okay with having different sets of standards and what you would focus on. And we're talking a lot now at Sneak about repeatable methodologies and more complex sales methodologies. And, you know, that's not something I would advocate for a $5 million ARR company, right? Or that kind of stuff, right? So I think it's understanding where they are and then directing your advice to where you think that should be. For people that are going through that scaling journey, though, do you recommend they have like a set of peers or something that they can call upon? Or like, what's the best way to scale yourself? You talked a lot about you got to be flexible. But at the same time, like, you just don't know what the next stage will bring and how that's going to work. And so how do you manage that? I think having mentors is really important. Again, I have a couple. I do a quarterly call with Ed. And sometimes he's like, you're right. And sometimes he's like, I think you should see it some way other way, you know, and the answer, the truth is probably somewhere in between, but it's good to get course corrected and challenged by people you're not in it with every day. So, you know, look, these things are hard. And when you're in the foxhole for a long time, it's very easy to be like, well, of course they told me that they want to do this, this, and this. But when you roll that same scenario out to someone who's a CEO of a company that's in a totally different space, they'd be like, well, I kind of understand what they were talking about. I think that's really important. I think you got to surround yourself with people you're inspired by. I'm a huge believer in mastery. My leaders, I have to be like obsessed with them. I think they're so good. I want to learn from them. I'd love to get a beer with them when the next time I'm in their town, if they're not local in Boston. I'm professional. I draw a line between being like friends and a boss, or if I am their friend, they know when the lights are on, we're going to communicate a different way. 
But I think getting inspired by the people below you is super important. I'm still very involved with the type of people we hire because I think that's really important. So I think that's another thing that is underrated. Makes sense. Well, I think that being involved in the hiring is something that is so important because it maintains that early day culture. It maintains that, yeah. Early too, your first 20 or 30, no recruiters. It's either people you know and trust intimately or you're on LinkedIn finding them. You're interviewing them. I want my CEO, my CFO. I want everyone bought in on this person. I want you to tell, you know, I think that's super critical. There's a lot of VP sales listening that would not be too happy with that. But, you know, it's a- <laughs> why though? Like you got to hire, you got to really be like, I know this is my team or later on. I'm a big believer in recruiters and that kind of stuff. But like early on, it's your team. It's going to reflect you. You're going to send them to Tel Aviv to go hang out with the engineering team, or I'm going to send them to New York and they're going to be at two bold start events. They're representing you. I need to just know that everyone is signed off on those individuals. Yeah. So true. And thank you for all the insights, Ethan. This was something, you know, wanted to do for a while and it definitely lived up to the hype. So what would you like to highlight, by the way, for listeners, just whether it's pertaining to sneak or yourself or anything, is there anything that you'd like to bring up? I'm super proud of what we've built at sneak. And I think we're going to continue to do amazing things coming in into 2024, specifically around prioritization in the DevSecOps space. And there's a lot of exciting stuff there, but more what I would tell anyone listening to this, who's passionate about early stage is just that, like a lot of this is just passion. And are you going to get up that next day? And even if the day before was the worst day you ever had, are you going to take that hill again? Something someone taught me very early on, and this works for any scenario, the minute you stop, they win. And that's something I use every single day to fuel myself. The minute I stop, they win. All right. I got the new one. I have trade dollars for speed, but yeah. now I got the minute you stop. They, <laughs> they stop. win. And, then they're ba- and they're bastards, Shomik. So we can't let them win. You know what I'm saying? So I love it. I really appreciate you having me on. Next year, sales times web assembly. We do it. That's, that's right. Love it. All right.